I know when we start talking about the grid, the average American out there thinks, what are we talking about? Well, the ability to transmit electricity. Welcome to today's Jolt. It's the 16th of October. I'm Sam Morgan, your host. Later in the episode, we'll be looking at why grids are suddenly red hot and back in fashion. First up, though, let's kick off the show by taking a look at the stories making the news at the moment. Starting in India, where the government is reportedly working on a plan to push developed countries to target net negative emissions by 2050 instead of just net zero. That would mean richer countries reaching a point where emission removals through land sinks, forests and technological methods would exceed the amount of greenhouse gases being put into the atmosphere. India's logic is that this would give developing countries more time to use fossil fuels and grow their economies. If this plan does see the light of day, expect it to form the backbone of an interesting discussion, to say the least, at COP28 in November. Just to note that India's net zero date is currently 2070, so make of that what you will. In the EU, environment ministers are meeting today in Luxembourg for a council meeting. They will hope to land agreements on two major energy and climate matters, the first of which is CO2 emission standards for heavy-duty vehicles. Ministers will hope to avoid a political impasse like the one we saw when governments tried to broker a deal on the same kind of standards for cars. The second most important item on the docket is the EU's negotiating position for the UN Climate Summit, COP28. We'll have details of both of those results on Wednesday's show. Sticking with Europe, energy ministers meet for a separate council meeting on the 17th of October. The main thing on the agenda is an upgrade to electricity market rules, which has been bogged down by the wildly diverging positions of the EU's 27 member countries. Topping the list of disputes is what to do with contracts for difference, or CFDs, and whether to make them mandatory for just brand new power generation that receives state aid, or also for existing plants. It's quite a complex upgrade, uh, so stay tuned for more analysis on what all of that means for the energy transition. Russian President Vladimir Putin will meet Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping tomorrow in what is Putin's first trip outside of the former Soviet Union this year. Energy is expected to be high on the leader's agenda, as Russia has turned more and more eastwards to replace all the bridges it's burned by its illegal invasion of Ukraine, which started early last year. For example, China is predicted to import 22 billion cubic metres of gas this year, while Europe is on track to import just 21. It would mark the first time that China has ever topped Europe in that particular ranking. More rather than less cooperation on energy is widely expected. New Zealand's general election this weekend looks set to install a right-wing populist coalition government made up of parties that oppose a ban on new offshore oil and gas exploration that was imposed in 2018. For more on what New Zealand is doing, or not doing as the case may be, on energy and climate, the latest episode of The Policy Dispatch will be right up your alley. Link in the show notes. In the United States, the government revealed which hydrogen projects are set to receive $7 billion in funding under the nation's infrastructure law. The money is earmarked for seven hubs across the country. They could produce 3 million tonnes of hydrogen per year, making a serious dent in a government target to reach 10 million by 2030. 
Five of the hubs will include projects that produce clean energy sourced green hydrogen, while two will include a focus on pink hydrogen, which is produced using nuclear power. For more on this rather unexplored aspect of the fledgling hydrogen economy, check out our latest article on foresightdk.com, which suggests that atomic hydrogen still has plenty of hurdles to overcome. And to wrap up the news today, we stay with nuclear. Mongolia has signed an agreement worth 1.6 billion euros with France, which will clear the way for nuclear fuel company Orano to operate a uranium mine in the world's largest landlocked country. Mining is due to start in 2028 and is welcome news for France's vast nuclear fleet. The deal also includes a cooperation agreement on using satellites to search for lithium deposits. That's all of your news updates for today. Now let's move on to a closer look at the story of the moment. When you plug in an appliance or a gadget, have you ever stopped to consider how magical it is that there is just power lurking behind the socket, ready to recharge whatever is connected to it? Uh, It truly is a wonder of the modern world. We need more of that magic though. Grids, 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 grids. That's all you're going to hear about for the next couple of months, maybe years, as regulators and politicians rapidly come to the realisation that all of our ambitious climate and energy goals hinge on our ability to get electricity where it's actually needed. Electrify everything! It's a soundbite we have all heard many, many times by now. We'll hear it again as well. Transport, industry, heating, cooling, you name it, electrons can, at least theoretically, power it. They just need to be shipped to the right place. This requires more transmission lines, more substations, software upgrades, smart meter installations, and a whole host of other grid-related measures everywhere. In the UK, they're calling it the Great Grid Upgrade. In Germany, politicians are locked in a seemingly eternal struggle to link the energy-rich north with the industry-intensive south. In South Africa, grid collapse has been a risk for the last decade because of poorly maintained infrastructure. This is a global issue for the energy transition. Europe is a leader when it comes to many things, energy and climate. So is the grid's outlook good or bad? I spoke with the head of trade body Euroelectric, Christian Ruby, who explained why Europe is actually in a good place, but decision makers really cannot afford to rest on their laurels. We have a very high level of service from the grids in Europe. Uh, Anywhere you go in Europe today, you will have the lights switched on immediately and you will have very limited amounts of fallout and very few minutes of fallouts in pretty much any country of Europe. So the situation on the ground today is good. The situation is not so good when it comes to meeting the future demand. And this has to do with the regulatory environment that uh, distribution system operators operate within. The disconnect is emerging because at policy level, we've decided to massively increase the ambition for renewables, for uh, electrification of transport, installation of uh, heat pumps across Europe. And this uh, ambition to connect many more appliances, uh, connect much more generation capacity, that has not trickled down to the distribution system level yet they've not been allowed to make those necessary corresponding investments. At the beginning of last week the EU completed an update to renewable energy rules that will include a 42.5% target for 2030. 
Now that is firmly in place. Governments need to get serious about meeting it. That is where grids come in, of course. Next month, the European Commission, that's the executive branch of the European Union, will unveil a new action plan for grids rollout. This new plan is unlikely to include any new rules or laws per se, but instead will be somewhat of a repackaging and reminder of rules and recommendations that have already been issued. Risk management experts DNV published a report recently that predicts $12 trillion, that's trillion, will be pumped into renewables and green infrastructure in North America by 2050. DNV says that it has taken existing grid bottlenecks into account, insisting that transmission and distribution system operators will be driven by the unprecedented opportunity to capitalise on the vast market for renewable power. I asked Christian what he thinks about developments in the US in particular, and whether the Mammoth Inflation Reduction Act is already having an impact. For me, it's a bit early to evaluate the impact of the RA on actual grid reinforcements and deployment. Uh, what we can see very clearly is that it's triggering a lot of investments when it comes to the manufacturing of different types of assets, uh, be it cars, hydrogen, or wind turbines. But how that trickles through to the actual grid, um, I, I think that might be a bit early to evaluate. What I can tell you is that, that the challenge of grids is one that we definitely share with the US. Um, we just had a, the International Electricity Summit in Washington uh, last week. Um, where we meet with delegations from Japan, Australia, Canada, and uh, the U.S. And the issue of grid modernization reinforcement was very, very prevalent when we talked to the Americans. One of them said, without transmission, there's no transition. And I think that uh, says it all. Grids are becoming rather political in the U.S. Texas, which has its own power grid, mostly as a way to avoid federal regulation, has struggled to keep its aging infrastructure online during heat waves. Republican lawmakers have blamed renewable energy for those problems, although expert opinion clearly shows that the likes of solar power in particular has helped the state avoid blackouts. Grids are on President Joe Biden's agenda, and last month, following horrendous fires in Hawaii, the US leader pledged millions of dollars to shore up the island's infrastructure. Today, I'm announcing that $95 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law is on the way to Hawaii to harden the ground power, harden the grid we talk about. I know when we start talking about the grid, the average American out there thinks, what are we talking about? Well, the ability to transmit electricity. And this funding is going to pay for installing technology, technology like smart meters that can tell, tell you where the problem actually is when the line goes down. That's part of the problem. A lot of these in other, not Hawaii's, Maui's not that big, but in parts of California, Oregon, and all these places where these fires were, where did the wire go down? We're going to be installing meters that let the person sitting back in the headquarters know, whoa, it went down at such and such a coordinates, such and such a pole. To enable emergency responders to more quickly identify which lines are damaged or down, so repairs can happen as quickly as possible and get the power back on and prevent damage from occurring. Power lines and pylons are a massive part of the current geopolitical situation. In Europe, cross-border interconnectors are a huge talking point. The Iberian Peninsula, rich in renewable energy potential, is isolated from the rest of the continent because of a lack of power lines. 
That is slowly changing, but the pace is somewhat glacial. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has also turbocharged grid policies. Here's what EU Energy Commissioner Kadri Simpson had to say about the issue at a summit dedicated to grids last month. But there is uh, one moment that really stands out in my memory. On uh, the 23rd of February last year, Ukraine disconnected uh, from the Russian-operated electricity grid. And just a few hours later, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And many believed that uh, Ukraine's act of energy independence would be short-lived. But over a fortnight later, a fully synchronized uh, with the continental um, European grid, they did that, and it worked. This kept Ukraine's electricity system stable, its homes warm, uh, and lights on even at the darkest hours of the winter. The three Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, have also stepped up efforts to disconnect their Soviet-era infrastructure from Russia and Belarus. Although now connected to neighbouring EU members by some transmission lines, the Baltic grid frequency is still controlled by Moscow, leaving the three nations open to energy weaponization, uh, which Russia has clearly demonstrated it is more than willing to implement. The synchronization project has been ongoing for a number of years, but was galvanized by Vladimir Putin's invasion. Here is what Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas had to say about the initiative. What is also very important is having better connections with neighbours. And uh, a key example is the ongoing project of uh, synchronisation of Baltic electricity grids to Europe, where I'm very thankful for the European support as well. Emboldened perhaps by how rapidly regulators were able to synchronise Ukraine and Moldova's grids with Europe's, uh, that process was completed in March 2022, having been earmarked only for early 2023, Work on the Baltic project is also accelerating. Initially forecasted to complete the decoupling by end of 2025, the timeline has recently shifted up and is now set at February 2025. It is a huge step, and the knock-on effects of removing the uncertainty caused by dependence on Russia, whatever form that might take, will surely help the Baltics make good on plans to roll out more renewable energy, particularly offshore wind. Tomorrow, here's the current news bit of this particular item. The International Energy Agency is releasing a first-of-its-kind report on the global state of grids. Executive Director Fatih Barol says that the outlook will examine how to ensure they don't become a bottleneck for energy transitions and undermine electricity security. Look out for that study. Uh, it will definitely be an interesting read, to say the least. And just before I sign off on this segment, I've looked today at why countries, governments, regulators need to improve their existing infrastructure and expand their networks. But spare a thought for the estimated 770 million people around the world that still don't have access to electricity. That number actually increased last year for the first time in decades, somewhat surprisingly. So while grid progress with climate goals in mind is an admirable and obviously necessary objective, uh, remember that it is also needed just to provide people with a basic standard of living, which unfortunately is sorely missing in many parts of the world. More effort is certainly needed there as well. Many thanks for joining me today. I'll be back on Wednesday with another episode of The Jolt. I'd like to thank all of you that sent us feedback last week on the first week of episodes. We're hoping to make this show as listener-driven as possible, so all feedback is really appreciated, so keep it coming. Before I sign off, just a brief roundup on what else we've got for you at Foresight Climate and Energy. 
Be sure to check out the latest article on pink hydrogen that I mentioned, plus the latest episode of What Matters, which is all about the true cost of renewables. Also keep your eyes peeled later this week for the next episode of The Policy Dispatch and my conversation with Wales's Climate Minister. Until next time, thanks for being a part of the Jolt. <laughs>